man, we're just the product placement is is unreal. Starbucks, uh, look at this. Starbucks, right. I'm holding the Starbucks. Well, that one's yeah, that that one's a little played out, I think, Jeff. I also said that like people could see my coffee cup. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is August 24th, 2021. My name is Neil Payne. I'm a senior sports writer at 538. Joining me from California is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. How's it going, Neil? It's good. We are um, without our usual host, and stalwart companion Sarah Ziegler again. She's on vacation, and I think she's uh, even more inaccessible this week than she was last week. So uh, we are we are most certainly on our own. And I'm uh, I'm back in my car. So there's that. Yes, you are in the Mazda studio presented by Mazda. Um, it's actually the well, you know. Oh, did you get a still, new car, Jeff? We still value Mazda as a as a loyal sponsor of this show. Oh, of course, long slash- time. Not a sponsor, Mazda. Feel free to send us money if you want, and we'll continue to advertise you. But this would be the Volvo Studio, uh, which oh, wow. is a older studio, which I have not used in a while. So. <laughs> There's a lot more miles on that studio. Yeah, you know. this 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 studio is a little bit dirtier. Um, there's more goldfish crackers on the ground, but um, it's still a good studio. So anyway, uh, yeah, just you know, there's a lot. Going on in sports, even though it feels like maybe it should be a little bit of a more dead period of time. We've got the WNBA in in full swing. Elena Deladon made her comeback. She had 16 points in that, uh, which was a pretty cool moment to see uh, see her back in action and and looking pretty good. Uh, and also, we got golf happening, Jeff, uh, because yeah. this is a golf pod. You got any uh, John Rahm Northern Trust takes? I know he well, complained I got to- about the format of the yeah. PGA Tour playoffs. Well, I think he's right on that. I mean, I I, I don't think that format's ever made sense. Um, but how but- would you do a format for golf? I was kind of thinking about that with his comments of like, there's there's really no good way to do a playoff where you simultaneously give credit to guys for the season that they had and then also uh, allow it to feel like it's sort of a do-or-die environment uh, once you get to the playoffs, right? The best way to do it would be a match play tournament. Well, I was thinking about that too, but gosh, if you look at, you know, they they do have the match play, you know, every year the World Golf Championships match play. And it's play. a different beast, yeah. But Tony Finau, let's talk about Tony Finau, friend of the pod. Uh, winning a tournament. I mean, this guy has not won a tournament since, uh, what was the last time? Been years, yeah. Um, more than that, or something, yeah, the Puerto Rico, he won in Puerto Rico, but this guy's had so many top fives, and to see him win something was great, and a big one. Yeah, and you, I think you, uh, you and or Sarah have both sort of picked him, uh, multiple times, I think, to, to have a major breakout. This is, you know, sort of, it's like, uh, the, the PGA Tour playoffs is kind of a, uh, a, a kind of, sort of, quasi-major in- environment, I guess. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is, like, now, he was one of those guys who's on the, the, this is great, by the way, not to stop myself, but this is great golf pod action we got here. The interesting thing is that I wonder if he's played himself onto the, the Ryder Cup team, because that, that he was right in that conversation for some of those captain's picks. 
Now that we've actually we've talked about some different sports, I do want to say up front that today's show is going to be a little bit different uh, from here on out because we usually sample hot takes across multiple different sports. But today we're just sticking with baseball. We're going to stay laser focused on it. We're, we're coming up toward the end of the season. And also there have been some some cool things that happened uh, beyond just the the normal MLB, you know, postseason races and this, that and the other. Uh, so we're going to talk about Miguel Cabrera joining the 500 home run club. Uh, and we're also going to check in with the Little League World Series. Uh, and we're going to have a guest uh, who is who is very passionate about that. Uh, and then finally, at the end of the show, we're going to debate the merits of fanatics making baseball cards and generally fanatics takeover of the sports merchandise and paraphernalia world. Last Sunday, Miguel Cabrera joined one of the most exclusive clubs in baseball, hitting his 500th home run in a game against the Toronto Blue Jays. Although he hasn't always been associated with the Detroit Tigers, he is the first player to join the 500 home run club in a Detroit uniform. And he's the 11th player since the year 2000 to break into that exclusive club, bringing the total number of players with 500 or more home runs up to 28. On the KJZ show on ESPN, though, Alan Hahn asked Keyshawn Johnson if he thought the 500 home run club was as impressive a feat these days as it's been in the past. 500 home runs is still a lot, no matter you know how many times it's been done. It's a milestone. That's why we're having a conversation about yeah. it. But 3,000 hits—that's even more impressive. It's almost like I don't—you know—batting percentage-wise, it has to be high for you to be able to go up to the plate. 310. Yeah. Yeah, and and be able to you know, connect and be able to do those sort of things. So Jeff, this is the sound statistical analysis that we love here at 538. It turns out that 500 home runs is a lot of home runs. <laughs> so how do you think that we should contextualize Cabrera's accomplishment? Where do you think he, he it kind of, uh, where do you think the 500 home run club, first of all, ranks in terms of the prestige of the various different clubs in baseball uh, and, and maybe even outside baseball? And also, where would you put uh, Miguel Cabrera in that uh, conversation? Is he in, is he one of the best players uh, overall to have accomplished that? And uh, what, is this one of the milestones that is still worth talking about in baseball? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I mean, it's interesting because baseball is really the only sport where we still care about milestones, I think, more or less. I mean, football's... Uh, it, well, baseball, like everything else, like the Hall of Fame, like the All-Star Game, all this sort of tradition gets way more attention than the other sports. Um, so... If there are milestones we're going to talk about, they're probably going to be in baseball, and I think this is a big one. I mean, I think 3,000 hits, um, which Cabrera, you know, he set out this year to do 3,000 hits and 500 home runs. I don't think he's going to get to 3,000 hits um, unless he starts. He needs uh, 45 more uh, to get to 3,000. 3, so he would have to really go on a tear. Um, <laughs> but he... If he's back, um, he'll certainly probably get there also, and I think that's probably I'd put that even maybe a little bit higher than 500 home runs, um, 300 wins. Uh, that one, that one, we're not going to see for a while, I don't think, um, just because of it doesn't seem like longevity in pitching is is really a thing anymore. Um, no. with, with all the injuries, um, I can't even think who the last one to make the 300 win club was 
Glavin, maybe? I don't even know. So, yeah, I, w- I would put in that kind of upper echelon of, of, of baseball milestones. And, and it, it's interesting with Cabrera because it took him a really, like, you look at the other guys on the list, it took him a lot longer than, than almost all of them. You know, I think the last one to sort of have this kind of career where it, it really happened late in his career or, or you know, 2,500 games into his career was, was Eddie Murray, uh, which was a few years ago. Um, but usually it's done quicker and, and, and Miguel Cabrera obviously would have done it quickly. Um, but you know, a few years ago his his home run numbers went from like regularly in the thirties to in the, you know, in the teens and below 20. So it's been, it's been a grind these last few years for him in, in terms of power. But what do you think, Neil? I want to hear your milestone, uh, opinion. Well, if we just go by sheer you know, rarity of it happening, uh, you could make the case that 500 home runs is more impressive than 3,000 hits. Because like I said, there are 28 members of the 500 home run club. Uh, Cabrera became the 28th. There are 32 members of the 3,000 hit club, uh, of, of which Roberto Clemente is is number 32 on the list because, and, and always will be tied for it uh, uh, now and forever because he landed on exactly 3,000 before his untimely passing um so just by that number it's slightly easier i don't know if that's the right term but it's sort of you know it's it's slightly uh, less rare to to get 3,000 hits than it is to get 500 home runs and you know like you said cabrera is is you know gonna take a shot at it at least because he has a few more years left on that contract you know he that's something that's important to him but I, I uh, to your point about sort of the the weight that he had to have in order to accomplish this, uh, I wanted to highlight a great story by Jordan Schusterman at Fox Sports, where he basically looked at he did a deep dive into the trajectory of uh, Miguel Cabrera's chase for 500, and really found that. It, it it underscored how difficult it is to join that club, even if you start your career off really amazingly. And I think that that's fair to say about Miguel Cabrera. So like, for instance, it, he looked at the average member of the 500 home run club and how many home runs they had through various ages. Through age 23, the average 500 home run club member had 77 home runs. Miguel Cabrera had 104. And in fact, he was above that average uh, every season until age 35, which was in 2018, which was really the first year he missed a lot of time. And from that point on, he did, like you said, sort of fell off of the pace. So it is kind of amazing to me that a guy can start his career as really a precocious, uh, you know, producing beyond his age hitter uh, like Cabrera, who made his debut at age 20. We remember him on the 2003 Florida Marlins team that won the World Series uh, and can be above the the break even the the average pace for the 500 home run club every year until age 35 and then still just sort of have to scrap and claw to be able to uh, get over that finish line uh, a, a few years later. I think that that really is a testament to how difficult it is to do that and how it, it you have to be good 
early in your career. You got to be good in the middle of your career, and you really got to be good at the end of your career um, just to just to do that. And I think we talked about that consistency factor when we were talking about Hank Aaron's passing, about how he sort of snuck up on people with how many home runs that he had, um, and and the fact that he he all of a sudden was in a position to to really um, make a charge at Babe Ruth's record because he just went out and hit. 40 home runs, you know, or 35 to 40 home runs practically every year for like two straight decades. And then all of a sudden those, those pile up. So it really is about the long game. It's not about, um, it's, it's sort of the tortoise, not the hare. You you have to go out there and, and, uh, just consistently pile up these, these good home run seasons. Um, but I also just think Cabrera is fascinating overall because of the arc of his career where, like I said, I mean, he was in right field during the Bartman game in Wrigley Field, uh, you know, on that Marlins team. And he has been around baseball to just see the changes that have happened to it. I think you could say the same thing about the arc of Albert Pujols' career. We talked about him when he um, moved from the Angels to the Dodgers earlier in the year. Uh, Also, but like those two guys especially as right-handed power hitters, they have seen the the whole arc of baseball history kind of play out in, in modern baseball history, recent history play out, uh, whether it be the influence of sabermetrics uh, gaining ground and then kind of becoming the dominant force. And you think about Cabrera in particular, his MVP battles against Mike Trout uh, really sort of laid the groundwork for something like wins above replacement to become common shorthand for fans and analysts and everyone to be talking about uh, player value in in the media and and so forth. Uh, and, and that was a seminal moment, I think, for, for the evolution of, you know, statistical analysis being commonplace in the game. Uh, and he's also been around, you know, from an era where you saw guys like Jamie Moyer and sort of these like slow, you mentioned Tom Glavin, guys like that, you know, these kind of control artist pitchers that didn't throw very hard early in his career. There were a lot of those guys. Now, late in his career, baseball has been sort of taken over by, seems like everyone can throw 95, 96 miles per hour. And he's been able to adjust through that. The injuries have been a little difficult and and sort of sapped some of his power. Uh, But he still has a, a... Career batting average well over 300, which I think is one of the most impressive accomplishments uh, that he has, given how many home runs he's hit, given how many hits he's, uh, you know, he's about to join that um, 3,000 hit club, we assume, eventually. So I just think he's he's had such a fascinating career, and you can kind of map out all kinds of different trends in baseball history that have sort of come and gone and, and emerged over the course of uh, the time that he's been in MLB. Yeah, and I think, you know, he, he really hasn't gotten his due. And, and and I was pretty outspoken about this when he won the Triple Crown, which was an amazing accomplishment. It hadn't been done in years. And really, talk about 45 it. years. It was the first yeah. time in 45 years. And it just it didn't feel like it got as much as attention as it deserved. And, you know, I think part of that might be because he's, you know, Venezuelan. And, and maybe it just doesn't have this sort of, there's some like institutional, um, you know, maybe downplaying of like uh, how amazing his career has been in terms of a sort of media, uh, media landscape. You know, I think if it was Mike Trout who did it, who was also I think flirting with it that year, it would have been, you know, the biggest story in sports. And it it, it felt like you know Cabrera wasn't getting his due um, in terms of just like what a absurd baseball talent he was in terms of hitting for power. And hitting for contact, um, 
but maybe joining both those clubs. I mean, I say this and he'll be a, obviously a first ballot Hall of Famer, but I do think there is a certain amount of like, it's hard to imagine, but underratedness considering how much he's accomplished and how much of a like historically great hitter he's been. Even in this, you know, sort of latter years where he's obviously not been the same player and the same, I think, could be said about Pujols as well. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you know, I think there is maybe a certain sort of bias um, against Latin American players that, uh, you know, the the media just uh, doesn't tell their stories the same way. And I do think also he, he was a victim of sort of becoming the guy that like if Trout was the avatar for the new school uh, that that I think a lot of younger fans wanted to see gain you know, ground and gain the the upper hand as how we talked about baseball. Cabrera, by definition, sort of became the the vehicle for sort of the old school and the sort of older sports writers, the ones that were pushing the, you know, the triple crown. By definition, those stats have all sort of been, you know, downplayed, I think is the right term you used it earlier, by us sabermetric types. Uh, And there are reasons for that. We don't have to get into the reasons around that. But I do think that that sort of, like you saw takes around that time of like, is the Triple Crown even that important? It's just an arbitrary collection of three metrics. And it's like, okay, come on. Like, uh, you, you don't have to throw out the whole arc of baseball history, uh, in, in, in you know, just to make a point. You don't have to downplay this thing that, again, uh, uh, Miguel Cabrera did for the first time in 45 years just to sort of um, win your argument over which metric should be used or whatever. I agree. And I, and I think, you know, it's still... While not perfect, um, it's still a proxy for getting on base and making contact, hitting for power, and driving in runs. And I mean, yeah, there's probably better ways to gauge those three concepts, but that's still the mark of a good hitter, um, all three of those things. So, you know, while not perfect, it, it is, it's probably the best we're going to do. You know, likewise, I mentioned the 300-win club. Randy Johnson got in in 20, 2009. It's still a long time ago, though. Yeah, it was That's still a long, long time. time, and it was two years after Glavin, and, and there's really no one close. Now, if if we don't like, you know, RBIs and, and batting average, we certainly can't like wins because that is probably <laughs> the most derided Even stat. more hated. Yeah, even more hated stat. But – it still is a proxy, I think, for longevity as a starting pitcher. Everyone who who has reached the 300 win club is a, you know, with the exception of Clemens, is an obvious Hall of Famer. And it is really, uh, you know, what else are we going to do? I mean, we, we have 3,000 strikeouts, and I think that list is, you know, Verlander and a few other guys got in there more recently. But part of that's just guys are striking out way more than they used to. Obviously, wins, you know, the game has changed, but that you know what else are we what else are we gonna use and there's no one close by the way to that so they might not see yeah. maybe, uh you know i think verlander's the highest active with just 226 so i don't think he's gonna make it and you know i wanted to talk about uh that question of who's next also for 500 because that's another one where you know, it's not immediately obvious who the who the next one will be. Nelson Cruz is the active leader in home runs. He has 443, but he's also 40 years old and he's still having like a 
pretty good season, especially when you consider um, his age. Uh, I believe he has, uh, I want to say he has 26 home runs, but let me double check real fast thanks to the indispensable baseball reference. Yeah, he has 26 home runs this year um, and and would have had more, I think, last year sort of um, uh, the shortened season really hurt him because he had 16 in the 60-game season. That's like a 40-plus home run season if you extrapolate it out over 162. So he would be knocking on the door a lot more um, uh, for 500 if if the pandemic had not a lot of things would be different if the pandemic had not uh, shortened the season last year but that's just one way at age 40 and you're only at 443 it doesn't seem terribly likely that he would be able to piece together you know the remaining 50 plus home runs that he needs uh, and will likely need by the end of the year uh, at age 41 42 so on and so forth he could do it uh, he he's been remarkably um, productive at a at a very old age uh, historically speaking but i don't know and then after that you've got Robbie Cano at 334 who he has his own reasons why maybe that's not going to happen, uh, multiple reasons. Giancarlo Stanton is 31 years old, and he's at 333, so he might be your best bet, uh, to be honest, uh, among this group. Um, but 333 home runs at age 31 is still quite a ways off from 500, especially in light of what we said just earlier about Miguel Cabrera uh, and and you know, how you can be on pace by a certain time and fall off that pace really quickly. And Stanton certainly, you know, belongs in the same conversation among these sort of great right-handed power hitters. I mean, Cabrera is a better contact hitter, I think, by far. To go back to homers, I think um, Bryce Harper's got a really good pace. I mean, he's 28 and he's got, he's more than halfway there. So uh, I think uh, he has a good shot, but that it's really interesting too, because Harper... You know, he's benefiting from starting his career at it, you know, before he was even 20. I mean, he started as a teenager. I think he came up at age 19. Whereas Nelson Cruz, you know, we've talked about in the past, started his career, you know, by by at least by current standards quite late. So I think that sort of um, put him a little bit behind. Um, whereas if yeah. he had those years as 19, 20, 21, 22, when, when, when Harper was homering a lot, uh, he'd probably be you know, easily be there by now. And we should also say Trout, Trout is the same, you know, in in yeah. sort of a similar situation where he's 29 and sitting at 310, but his past couple seasons, he's gotten hurt uh, and, and missed substantial playing time uh, to the point that, you know, his, his pace has fallen off and certainly he has the talent we think to come back and, and sort of overcome that, uh, if he stays healthy, but that's another great example of how a player can just, who, who has started their career better than Mike Trout, uh, in some ways. I mean, you know, Cabrera uh, also would be in that conversation in terms of just precocious young, uh, hitting talent from the right hand side of the plate. And yet, even that is not good enough necessarily to really ensure your place in in a club like the 500 Home Run Club. So we'll leave it there, uh, and we're going to be right back after this break to talk about more baseball. But this time, we'll go from talking about a really old baseball player to really young baseball players. There have been a lot of sports this summer, and we have a lot of sports ahead of us in the fall. But something that we feel should not get lost in the shuffle of every sporting event of the past two years happening all at once is the return 
of the Little League World Series, which is really sports at its most delightful, I think it's fair to say. And we wanted to take a moment to highlight it and uh, just the very different kinds of hot takes that it inspires compared with what we usually deal with. For instance, on ESPN, Tennessee Little League player Ryan Pearson fired off hard-hitting questions to a line of Cleveland Indians players, including right fielder Bradley Zimmer. You're getting interviewed today. What position do you play? And what's your favorite meal before a game? I play right field, and my favorite meal before a game, usually keep it simple. Oh, there's a line drive. Go chicken with some, with some greens and rice. For the folks and the fans, that is a great meal for any meal. That's one of the best meals you can ever have. Right? <laughs> Strong and healthy, buddy. So to talk about the Little League World Series, we are very happy to be joined by our very own 538 colleague, Emily Scherer, who has been doing a lot of Little League World Series watching and analysis. Hey, Emily, how's it going? Hey, guys. Um, it's the greatest time of the year. It's my favorite time. Yeah, you were really, you know, uh, you were very bummed. I think we all were last year when when we didn't get, uh, it was a year without Little League World Series, which is like a year without joy. For some of us. <laughs> Jeff is a notorious Grinch about the Little League World Series, which I didn't necessarily know until uh, we we started this. Segment, I just, so. you know, I, you know, watching children play sports is something, especially when you have kids, you will do. But I don't know if you need to do it when you're not your kids. I'm willing to be convinced. Yeah, what's different between that and like college basketball or something? I mean, they're they're still like you know teenagers. You're watching them. They're not your kids. Okay. They're other people's kids okay. playing. What's the difference? Just well, a few you years. know, the difference is a few years, I guess. And you know, a lot of those college basketball players become NBA players. So you could argue that those uh, the those players are the best. Of their age, but I guess you could say the same thing about this. So you know what? I'm not well, going to be great. Did you know, Jeff? Did you know? <laughs> did you know Todd Frazier played in the Little League World Series? You may not have known that. Uh, they only mention it during every Mets broadcast when he was with them, and during every yeah, Little they League World Series broadcast. Yes, his yes. nephew is playing. His nephew is playing, and they definitely mentioned it. <laughs> and Todd Frazier also, I believe, just finished uh, in the Olympic baseball tournament too. Remarkably. Yeah, and they probably talked about the Little League, the World, Little League Series World Series. They might If I had watched games. more Olympic baseball, I, I, I can't verify that. Um, yeah, me neither. He, he's but... really cornered the market on sort of uh, novelty baseball tournaments. Oh, yeah, you got to be in all of them. Uh, but, yeah, we're here to talk about this particular novelty baseball tournament. And so, Emily, I wanted to ask, first of all, what have been some of the highlights of the Little League World Series so far? Have we had any breakout stars or, you know, kind of impressive underdog teams coming forth or anything like that? Have we had any um, really dramatic shots of children crying um, and being disappointed. That is only sort of just starting this week as it is a double elimination tournament. So it takes about a week or so to get people to actually lose twice and then have the crying shots. Um, but that has started and the field has definitely winnowed. It's not until the second week that the, the that you get the crying. That's what they always <laughs> that, say. That's when I tune in. I, I tune in for the yes. crying. 
Um, but in terms of sort of big performances, we've had some ace pitching this year. Gavin Weir of South Dakota has sort of been the biggest name to come out. They're still in the running. He threw a combined no-hitter in his opening against Louisiana. It is a combined no-hitter because he basically couldn't get the last out because of the pitch counts and the sort of maximum pitches that they're allowed to throw. So someone else had to come in and get that final out. And then he's basically been killing it leading up from regionals into Williamsport. His last seven starts, he had 100 strikeouts and one hit. He also, against Oregon, grabbed a three-run homer, so he's sort of killing it from both ends. Yeah, Shohei Otani, you know, we we marvel at him at the MLB level, but there's a lot of, like, Otani-esque players in the Little League World Series uh, who, who both can hit and pitch really well, it seems like. Oh, yeah. And then Eli Jones of Washington, who's now out of the running, um, he got a no-hitter against Florida and also grabbed the RBI to get the 1-0 win. So it's also especially with how the teams are built. They're all stars from their sort of leagues back home. They're the best players on all of their individual teams. You get a lot of kids that can pitch and hit and sort of play all different positions. And you also get great names, right? I mean, we did a um, we did a rabbit hole on on the names we use the Monet rating, uh, yes. named after Monet Davis, uh, to to rate them. What what are some of your favorite names that you've seen so far in this year's tournament, Emily? So, in terms of best names, I think the two teams that are absolutely the top tier are South Dakota, which is Gavin Weir's team. Just from the players B's, you have Bo Corner, Boston Bryant, Brayson Fox, Boston Bryant. And Brecken Beitler, which is great. And then I'm, I am a big fan of Texas, uh, which has a girl playing on it, Ella Bruning, who's really awesome. She's a catcher. She's also pitched in the regionals. She's been killing it. She got, she's the third girl to have a multi-hit game in Little League World Series history. So she's been doing really great. They're still on the running, but her teammates also have great names. You have Blaze Ruffin, Major Blaze Ruffin, Major De Los Santos. Stetson Newman and Miles McCarty, you have just like very much Texas uh, based names. Yeah, I was going to say Stetson is a little on the nose, actually, for for a Texas uh, name, but we'll allow it because these are children. Um, (laughs) But that and and they also didn't name themselves. Everyone on New Jersey sounds like they are a character on The Sopranos, including you have two kids named Dominic spelled different ways. It's great. Um, and then also shout out to James Ort the third from Washington, who is the only player to have uh, Roman numerals at the end of his name. Interesting that there's only one because, yeah, the, we've we've seen sort of a explosion of that in um, pro sports recently or college sports where, where you see a lot of like the third, the second, the fourth, etc. So, uh, yeah, shout out uh, to them for keeping that alive. Uh, now, in terms of. Really, one of the other joyous things about the Little League World Series has been the interaction between pro players and the kids, uh, particularly around that uh, Little League Classic Series uh, game uh, that they played between the Indians and the Angels the other day. Uh, who showed up to Williamsport, and, and what have those interactions been like? Is there Have there been any fun moments between them, in addition to our take, which we, which we heard at the top of the segment? Yes, that was a delight to watch live as he would just go down the line um, prompting everyone, you're getting interviewed, before interviewing them. 
Um, so when the big leaguers showed up, it was actually a rain delay. There's been a lot of rain delays this past weekend, which was both nice because there was less watching of the game, and then they got to actually mingle a little bit. So Hawaii was playing at the time because they weren't actually playing and in a rain delay. Kurt Suzuki from the Angels, who's actually from Hawaii, was able to go down, hang out in the dugout with everyone. Shohei Otani was there. Kind of bummed that it wasn't a year when we had international players to really see, like, the teams from Japan interact with him. That's sort of one of the delights, usually, is seeing the sort of the players that have ties to international teams, like, hunt them down to bond with them specifically. It's been really fun. Um, And then Mike Trout came, despite not actually playing in the game at Bowman Field. Everyone was really excited to see him. And then Joe Madden, who has visited before when he was with the Cubs, clearly, like, loves the Little League World Series um, and was having a ball. You know, I love that you have on this spreadsheet the uh, the lists of the favorite actors, favorite school subject, favorite food. I would like to see that personally during a major league game, just to know, you know, what Adam Sandler movie these players really like the best. Um, it might influence, you know, which players I like the best to see if I have some interest align. Um, one one thing that stood out. There's one kid in here. I think his name's Eli Bucko. First of all, great name, Eli. And his favorite band is the Counting Crows. What did this kid get out of a time capsule? What? What? Or maybe it his, just his, tells his, you his his parents. I mean, this is like his you parents know, are when just we were playing a lot up, of Counting Crows. Right. When we were growing up, our parents exposed us to like the Beatles. Now these kids are young enough that their parents are, <laughs> are of a not. generation to expose them to the Counting Crows. I don't Let think that's sink a fair in. comparison. I don't Let think that that's sink a fair in. comparison. But yeah, I would love to hear some of these factoids. I think, um, you know, MLB, we're always kind of wringing our hands about, like, the face of baseball is not that well-known, and the, these guys aren't, you know, connecting with fans uh, as much as they should be. I think just doing, like, a running list of, like, uh, get-to-know-you type of questions like they do with these little leaguers would, would go a long way towards that. Who who Which MLB player's favorite band is Imagine Dragons? I don't know that right now. Probably a lot of them. Which would be unfortunate for them. Anyway, go on. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to... Going through some of my favorite intros that have come up, um, Zach Bagoyo from Hawaii, his dream job is to be a dermatologist. He's also very good at solving Rubik's Cubes. Sawyer Watkins from Louisiana, who is the shortest player in the league, he's four foot five. He goes frog catching, his dream job is to be a hunting and fishing guide, and he really likes Jim Carrey. There's, so there's so much fun stuff. They all love Adam Sandler. That is sort of the most consistent thing. I also love how they ask these kids <laughs> who are at the Little League World Series what their favorite sport to play is, and they all just say baseball, and it is yeah such a waste of space. Yeah, I I, I noticed that too. Favorite favorite <laughs> sport, baseball. It's just like why why are we asking this question? We can't come up with something else. Yeah, did they ever say anything else? Uh, I I didn't actually see any other sports besides favorite sport to play, baseball. I mean, that would be a boss move, though, if a player was like, yeah, baseball is just kind of like a side hustle for me. I'm actually much better at basketball. That was basically Monet <laughs> Davis. She was like, yeah, baseball's fun. I want to play basketball for UConn. Right. Yeah, I loved that moment. There's one kid, Ethan Van Bell, special talent. And then he just writes, great sense of humor. I love it. 
I love it. Yeah, I, I love all of it. So those are those are just the elements that I think you get in the Little League World Series. So, so Jeff, have we convinced you about the the greatness of this event through this segment um, so far? No, you haven't. But look, I, I'm willing to change. I'm willing to keep an open open mind. Yeah, just just you know, watch some of the coverage and make up your own mind. Right. Okay. I, I always did sort of struggle, you know, with the internet where you have international teams and then state teams. It always seemed a little curious to me, but I guess I didn't even realize that there's no international this year. Is that a COVID thing, I presume? Yeah, it's a COVID thing. So instead, basically, the top two finalists from all the regionals are there and then the ones who won the regionals got a higher seed. So that's also why they don't have on the gear, they don't have the regionals gotcha. listed because two of them are from the same region, which I've seen a weird amount of people upset about that online, that it just says Little League on their jerseys. Weird thing to complain about, um, given that we are so lucky to just simply have a Little League World Series this year. But it will be nice next year, yeah, presumably if they can um, bring back the full sort of international uh, cohort of teams to go with the American ones, because that that's always fun to see you know players from all around the world live out this dream too it's it's been pretty awesome over the years so yeah love the little league world series and just love the enthusiasm you bring to it emily i know this is um it's probably fair to say this is your favorite sporting pretty much yeah i love it i love sporting events that are compressed into like a couple weeks so i love the olympics i love this and then i just go all in awesome well we'll keep an eye out uh and and uh see who ends up actually prevailing in it beyond just all the kids uh, being winners just for being there and for having these great personalities and great names. Uh, But we'll leave it there. uh, And then we're going to move on to the rabbit hole of the week, but we're going to keep you around for that, Emily, uh, to talk about a big shakeup with the world of baseball cards and memorabilia in general. Here at 538, we often find ourselves going down rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. But while this isn't quite a rabbit hole of the week, we can't end our baseball-only show without talking about the seismic shift in the baseball landscape that happened in the last week. So for 70 years, Topps has been the official brand of baseball cards, but MLB is ending its partnership, and it's reported that they're looking to partner instead with Fanatics to manufacture baseball cards in the future. So we're excited to have you back, Emily, again for our final segment of the All Baseball Show discussion. Emily, you have thoughts about how Fanatics have handled other kinds of merch in the past. So what's their track record been, and what are your expectations for baseball cards if they do indeed strike that exclusive partnership with MLB? Yeah, so Fanatics sort of started as like a one-stop shop for all the sports merchandise. They're sort of the people behind every shop.nhl.nflmlb.com. And they basically went from running all of the stores online to taking over the design and manufacturing of a lot of that sports merchandise. They also have in recent years taken over the sort of in-arena retail store experiences. And in that, they've also sort of started manufacturing the sort of base level gear offered. So shirts, hats, jerseys, all of that stuff now has a Fanatics logo on them where you used to see like Nike, Reebok, New Era, all of that sort of stuff. And it hasn't been great. There's sort of quality control issues, stock issues. The designs are pretty dull, and you see the same design template used across every single sports league and team that they basically have the rights for, rather than having stuff a little more unique. 
tailored to the teams and the fans. So it's been sort of a bummer to see happen. So I don't have great uh, thoughts of this if they end up taking over all of sort of baseball card manufacturing. I feel like a lot of that personality that Topps has built up, including doing some really cool stuff with collaborating with artists and designers that they've done recently, is going to sort of fade away because, I mean, at least in the sports merchandise world right now, Fanatics hasn't really been doing that. That's sort of been left to the higher end merchandise providers or the teams themselves to build out those partnerships. So what does this mean for Tops? I mean, I can't think of a worse headline for that company. I think it's bad for them, obviously. Um, I think I read something where they were basically going to try and go public, and this ain't good news for that, given that they're mostly known for uh, baseball. Not a good look. Yeah, it seems really bad. Um, And just kind of shocking, because I think, you know, those of us who grew up collecting baseball cards, Tops was right there i mean that was the brand obviously other ones were came and went upper deck and so on and so forth but tops was sort of a constant there so yeah it was kind of shocking to see that happen um now what do you think facilitated this sort of i don't know this this um really rapid takeover by fanatics was it just like you were talking about earlier was it just that the league sort of needed someone to outsource their shops to and so there was this kind of power vacuum that fanatics stepped into and then just sort of like gradually began to accumulate um power in the market until they just became this unstoppable force i feel like that's probably it it's sort of like one it turned into we'll take over running the online website and the warehouses and all of that and then it turned into okay so we've done that now let's make the gear and now I guess let's make baseball cards let's take over all of it um yeah it's sort of they're basically the Amazon of sporting goods yeah and also I mean I guess it's it's there's some element where you know, instead of having like middlemen in the process uh, that they would use as distributors, like I know Tops would some, you know, ship cards to third parties and things like that to kind of do the distribution, especially worldwide. Uh, that you know, Fanatics has a larger network and they already have some of the infrastructure um, for that distribution in place. So, like, maybe it makes sense just from a pure logistics standpoint if we put aside our sort of nostalgia. Uh, and and uh, connections with tops, but like you said, also that fanatics gear. When I detected, you know, as as uh, listeners may know, I do collect um, baseball hats, and I have definitely detected a change in sort of the overall uh, selection and the quality and all of this uh, at the the various um, shops uh, online since fanatics really sort of started to go um, full on with their their takeover of that process so uh, yeah I think like you said it's it may not be it may not bode well for the for the future of sports cards the same way but then sports cards are just also taking off I feel like that might also be part of it is that they're seizing upon you know this moment where um, sports cards and also things that are connected to it, like these NFTs that you're seeing come out uh, around that are sort of collectibles, quasi sports card, yeah. like similar to that space that they're trying to get in on that. And I got to say, they must have made a ridiculous offer to to be able to kind of lock up this exclusivity going down the line. So they're making a big bet on this kind of continuing to gain steam uh, as well down the line. You know, it always kind of bothered me that when I was 
you know, rabidly collecting baseball cards. It was in this window when they were making so much, you know, that there was no value. I mean, there's no value to any card I ever collected, nor would there ever be value. There were too many of them out there. Um, So essentially, you know, what you thought was a valuable, you know, collection of Barry Bonds rookie cards or what have you um, is now worth nothing. And but now since then, what they've been doing lately is kind of building that scarcity back in. And we're seeing people, you know, pay thousands for a, um, you know, a, a, a young player's rookie card because, you know, they're they're building, you know, they're not printing as many as they could have, um, which is obviously a sort of easy decision if you're going to try to, like, get the interest back in terms of um, cards. But, you know, I've missed that window in my collecting period. So I've got a worthless collection, and I'm 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 frankly spiteful about it. Same, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I think I feel that exact pain. Like I I coming up in the in the 80s and the 90s, and that sports card like craze, and the assumption that all these um, cards would would become super valuable because they were shiny and pretty. Not not taking into account the fact that scarcity is actually what drives this uh and then sort of seeing that the bottom fall out of that and then seeing yeah the return recently of uh certain sports cards just not the ones we own uh to to high value is definitely sort of a bitter pill to swallow but i still love my collection of 90s hockey cards that sits at my mother's house in a overly thick binder that probably is collectively worth God knows how little. Emily, did you collect cards growing up? I did up? not, although I have started to pick up uh, some sort of more novelty cards, uh, including um, when I was on vacation uh, this past month, I did pick up a gift for Neil uh, out in Vegas at an antique store, which is a 90 to 91 um, Quebec Junior Hockey League uh, 10 uh, cards. So those are for you. Oh, my uh, God. Eventually. Wow. That is like the most up my alley gift possible. <laughs> I want you to know that 1991 hockey cards. Like you could not have picked a more 1991 uh, appropriate gift. Quebec major junior hockey cards. Right. Yeah. Hopefully the the text on them is in French because yes. I do have a few. Like I remember I do have a Wayne Gretzky upper deck. That is also again worthless. But the the entire text on it is in French. Yes. And I thought that that was like the coolest thing. I thought that would make it worth more. It didn't, but I thought it would. Yes, so. all the text on the package is in French, so bodes well. Yes, that's what I love. That's that's what I love in, in it. So maybe those will be worth something. Certainly the scarcity factor has to be higher for those than they are for the, some of those um, tops cards that got uh, churned out in the in the 90s. But yeah, Fanatic's taken over really the end of an era, it seems like, in... Um, in baseball in particular and you know the start of the new era i think uh, the the deal kicks in in like 2025 or something like that so they're going to have some years to maybe transition into the new the new world order and you know there's even been speculation about all kinds of different configurations like maybe fanatics will buy some of the tops you know trademarks and kind of continue those series the the ones that are particularly popular going forward and maybe it won't be the death of of tops you know completely but certainly the end of an era as we know it so 
RIP and uh, also, yeah, we'll see how it goes with Fanatics at the helm going forward. But thanks for coming on for this uh, sports card and, and merchandise related rabbit hole, Emily. Yeah, always fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that'll do it for this week's show. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you just heard, please subscribe. And if you are already subscribed, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover us and, and what we're doing out here. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer, as always, is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Jeff and Emily, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.